welcome to the Web Policy Talk podcast recorded live at the Impact and Policy Research Institute Impri New Delhi Namaste and good evening everyone. I am Ritika Gupta, Assistant Director at IMPRI, Impact and Policy Research Institute, Prabhav Evam Niti, Anusandhan Sansthan, Nai Dilli. Extend my heartiest welcome to you all to this hashtag web policy talk. Today we are here for a special talk on gender waste, violence, interventions, impact and way forward by Dr. Nadine Darubala. I would now like to welcome our moderator for today, Ms. Anshula Mehta, who is Assistant Director at IMPRI. Anshula, over to you. Thank you. Um, thank you, Ritika. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for joining us. Uh, I am Anshula Mehta, Assistant Director at INPRI, and on behalf of the Gender Impact Study Center at INPRI Impact and Policy Research Institute, I welcome you all to episode 29 in our talk series, The State of Gender Equality, uh, hashtag gender gaps. Uh, today, as Ritika said, we are joined by Dr. Nairin Daruwala for this talk on gender-based violence interventions, impact and way forward. And it's my pleasure to introduce her to you all. Uh, Dr. Nairin Daruwala holds a PhD degree in social psychology and has worked on gender-based violence for the last 20 years. She has developed uh, the program of prevention of violence against women and children at SNEHA, which is the Society for Nutrition, Education and Health Action, a nonprofit organization working on public health issues in Mumbai. She serves as program director for Sneha, leading the programs on prevention of gender-based violence with communities in urban and formal settlements. With a background in clinical psychology, her expertise is in conceptualizing model interventions to prevent violence for adaptation and replication in low and middle-income countries. Her particular focuses are on mental health and gender-based violence, counseling interventions, community development and response, and changing the institutional response to gender-based violence. Her work includes partnerships with University College London on research projects and on replication and adaptation of the gender-based violence model with government and non-government organizations in India. Her interdisciplinary background and research have contributed to the discourse on gender-based violence in South Asia. Currently, Dr. Daruwala has designed the scope, intent, and measures of effect of a complex intervention for primary and secondary prevention of gender-based violence in India. She is the principal investigator from Sneha on a cluster randomized control trial to prevent violence against women and girls in urban settlements of Mumbai. Additionally, she has managed projects on sexuality and health of adolescents and large public engagement projects involving art and science. Ma'am, thank you for taking out the time to join us here today. We also have with us as the chair for today's session, Professor Vibhuti Patel, who is an eminent professor, a gender economist and women's rights activist, she was formerly chairperson of and a professor at the Advanced Center for Women's Studies at the Tata Institute of Social Sciences, TIS Mumbai, and also professor and head of the Department of Economics at the SNDT Women's University in Mumbai. Thank you, ma'am, for taking out the time to chair the session today. And we will also be joined by Ms. Poonam Kathuria as a discussant um, after today's talk. She is director at SWATI, which is a Society for Women's Action and Training Initiative. I welcome you all. 
And with that, uh, I hand it over to Professor Vibhuti Patel to make her initial remarks and then invite Dr. Nadine for her presentation. Thank you. So good evening, friends. Uh, Dr. Simi Mehta, Dr. Nairine Daruwala, Ms. Puram Kathuria, and uh, Ms. Anshula Mehta, and all the participants in this very important webinar. And we all know that uh, gender-based violence interventions and impact uh, the way forward uh, that we are going to discuss today is extremely important. As we know that United UN Women declared right one year back, like in the month of March only, that violence, uh, gender-based violence has emerged as a shadow pandemic. And uh, it has escalated exceptionally during uh, last one year due to social isolation uh, under COVID-19 pandemic. The latest NCRB data, like National Crime Records Bureau data, shows that uh, there has been increase in gender-based violence to 7.3% over preceding year with over 4 lakh registered, 4 lakh 25,000 registered cases of crime, crime against women. Even the helpline like 191 and 1098 has been inundated with the distress calls from children as well as uh, adolescent girls and, and the pandemic of forced marriages and trafficking and child sexual abuse and incest and uh, uh, domestic violence, uh, they have emerged as a very important uh, uh, concern for the women's movement in this uh, current context. Uh, we are also too keenly aware of the increase during current pandemic, which has been a literal explosion. The government and non-government organizations have been fighting for women's rights. Uh, they have two major concerns uh, with regard to violence against women. One is prevention and also the rehabilitation. Efforts of, uh, at mitigation of violence against women in both these areas, they include helpline for women and men, one-stop crisis center, online gender sensitization program, and uh, also the counseling wherever it is possible to, to meet the survivor of violence. So it is in this context that uh, it is, uh, we are discussing and we have this uh, issue and Dr. Nailin uh, Darwala, who has been a uh, like pioneer in uh, Bombay community-based uh, intervention uh, in uh, with regard to violence against gender-based violence, she is with us. And uh, we are extremely delighted that she's the one who is going to analyze this problem on the basis of the primary uh, intervention that Snehaha organization has. Uh, as I know that like in last one year, Sneha has, uh, Sneha was one of the first uh, community-based organization to start uh, a helpline, like five mobile numbers of Sneha were all uh, advertised everywhere in the newspapers and uh, in all the community-based organizations, they benefited from the SNEHA's intervention because they directly work with the municipal hospitals. It is mainly because of the efforts, the collective endeavor of women's organization who are providing institutional support to women survivor of violence that Bombay Municipal Corporation started uh, one-stop crisis center in 13 hospitals during the pandemic. So I think it's going to be great learning experience and one of the best practices also, so far as the local self-government body is concerned, that uh, the, the kind of efforts which the civil society organizations and the women's rights groups and uh, government bodies, they have made. And it's not only intervention, but also 
the documentation, participation, participatory action research, and creating evidence-based policy intervention so that other municipal corporations can also replicate this model. So over to Dr. Nairin Darwan. Thank you. Thank you, Imri, for giving me this opportunity to present on gender-based violence and intervention. Thank you, uh, Ms. Poonam Athurya, Dr. Vibhuti Patel, Simi Metta, and Anshula Metta here present today for the talk. So, uh, and my, the topic today is gender equality. And what is the gap in gender equality? Now, uh, next thing, we can start. So when we talk about gender equality, I think uh, when uh, India got its independence, there were right, the, the constitution that was framed actually uh, talked about equal rights to women and men. But over the years, in the last 72 years, we haven't seen that happening at all. So uh, in, in all walks of life, Women have been discriminated. Women have been put behind. And the, the main reason for this is socialization, which we all know, the patriarchal socialization that we all have been living in. What in, When we talk about gender equality, one of the biggest deterrents to gender equality is gender-based violence. When the woman is day in and day out violated, her body is violated, her mind, her rights are violated. How can we achieve gender equality? How can we even look at achieving gender equality in a scenario where a woman has to, from the beginning of her life, she has to keep struggling in many ways to even exist and forget a respectable existence, but even in existence sometimes, for a woman becomes so difficult. So uh, the, the sustainable development goals talk a lot about ending discrimination against women and girls. And, and I will like to go back to the millennium goals. The millennium goals also talk about ending discrimination, ending violence, but nothing really happened. We couldn't achieve what we had set out to. So now the sustainable goals talk about ending discrimination against women, eliminating all forms of violence, increasing women's participation and leadership, ensuring that she gets access to sexual and reproductive rights, use of information technology, and sound policies and legislation. On paper, when you see this, it really looks great if, if countries can really achieve this. I think then there would be no problem in, in bridging the gender gap. But the reality is that countries are not able to achieve this uh, status and gender-based violence really remains a public health disaster in many, many countries. Next, please. So this is a global overview of uh, prevalence rates of intimate partner violence. And if you see, you can see that the uh, Mediterranean region and the Southeast Asia region are heavily infested by intimate partner violence. Of course, in the last few years, we have heard 
rates of prevalence of intimate partner violence from England, Australia, from Spain. So it no more remains a public health disaster only in low and middle income countries anymore. But still, if you see the rates over here, you will see that definitely Southeast Asia and Mediterranean regions and African regions are much higher when we talk about intimate partner violence. And, and in global sense, these regions are uh, behind, I mean, they are still developing countries as compared to other developed countries. Next, please. So definitions, often what we see is there is a lot of confusion in definitions about gender-based violence, violence against women and girls. And I'm not going to spend too much time, but I think it is important to understand what are the differences in definitions. And when we say gender-based violence, we mean violence happening on account of gender. Now, that gender also includes uh, all kinds of gender, sexuality, and it's much far more inclusive. So when, when we work in urban slum communities, we talk about gender-based violence because uh, gender-based violence is uh, at the intersection of caste, creed, and socioeconomic status. Violence against women and girls is very specific to women and girls. Any acts of violence that result in physical, mental, or sexual harm or any kind of threat to women and girls is generally termed as violence against women and girls. Next, please. Now, when we talk about violence against women and girls, generally it falls into three categories. Intimate partner violence, which is through your partner. The types of violence are physical, sexual, psychological, and sexual origin, but of late. I think a new form of violence, which we see a lot in our uh, counseling centers is controlling behavior. And, and uh, one of the scientists has termed it as gender-based household maltreatment. So it may not be physical violence, it may not be sexual violence, but a lot of controlling behaviors, neglect, not allowing the woman to go and seek healthcare, not giving women enough resources to exist well. So this is one form of violence which we see a lot in the last few years. Domestic violence is violence not only by the intimate partner, but it also includes any other family member. And sexual violence is anyone either in the extended family, in the close family or outside is considered to be sexual violence. Next, please. So, and, and as I said, gender-based violence is a global disaster. All over the world, globally, you will see that 30% in, in, in their ever married life, women have reported 30% of women have reported physical and sexual intimate partner violence. Next, please. Out of these in Southeast, South Asia, it is 42%, and that is really, really high. 
big news to in the earlier figure also. So real and sexual violence in Southeast Asia, the prevalence is very high. And that is the reason why WHO, when it when WHO has announced indicators, declared indicators on measuring prevalence of violence, the WHO has mainly focused on physical and sexual violence. Next, please. In India, what are the rates in India? In India, it is almost domestic violence physical is 29% in the last year, only in the last year. So it's a one year prevalence data that has been collected. Next, And domestic violence emotional is again 22%, which is quite high. So what really happens is women will not really recognize emotional forms of violence for a long period of time unless they really understand that any kind of deprivation, degradation is also a form of violence. And what we see in our urban clubs where we were, urban informal settlements, there is uh, violence intersects a lot with poverty. And women barely, families barely manage to exist. And in such a situation, uh, issues of violence are always put on the back burner. And we saw the same thing in COVID times. In COVID times, on our helpline, from March 18th to uh, September 30th, we received about 1,777 calls in this period. And most of these calls were of domestic and intimate partner violence, not only physical violence, but a lot of women spoke about emotional violence, deprivation, not being able to, not being provided with uh, resources, and not being able to really cope with the quarantine situation where they were left with the perpetrator. Next, please. And sexual violence. In India, sexual violence, although, although media talks a lot about sexual violence, and each case of sexual violence is really highlighted a lot in the media, the reporting, the actual prevalence reporting is only 7%. And, and here, I would only like to say that although media focuses a lot on sexual violence, I think uh, uh, the, the work that we have done for so many years has really shown that domestic violence and intimate partner violence are highly intrinsic, highly pervasive, and prevalent everywhere. So I think we need to really kind of bring about a change in our language and in the landscape by saying that women are not safe outside. Women are not equally safe in their home. Next, please. Yeah, so the multiple forms of violence reported by women in India in the last year have been 30%. So you can imagine one in every uh, three women gets violated in some or the other way. And until they realize that this is violence and they ask for help, sometimes it is very late. So we have failed. It, is, it has been a public health disaster in our country also. And it is only the NGOs, the civil society organizations who have been 
carrying out this work day in and day out tirelessly to make to bring about a change and to bring respite to women next thing you can see the health the slower the disclosure rates are very minor negligible 2% and why women do not disclose because of issues of family honor issues of she not having resources not being able to leave the house and go children so there are many issues with the allotment women have not been able to report next thing so gender based violence and health i think uh when we talk about gender based violence intervention health is physical and mental health is very closely interrelated to gender based violence intervention and that injury for example it causes that of all we know do you know that more women die due to injuries rather than cancer in our country and in our in our country in south asia women have 42% of women have been injured due to uh, violence so you can imagine it's a high rate of injuries sexually transmitted infection miscarriages induced abortion still but all these maternal health outcomes are very much related to violence the other i was i was totally surprised when i read that the uh, rate of homicide you know the prevalence rate of homicide in southeast asia is what 55% as compared to any other developed country so you can imagine the impact it has on health of women and when i talk about health it is both mental and physical health of women next please so now i'm going to talk about gender based globally gender based violence intervention which have been reviewed and which are the interventions that are promising and then i'm going to link it with our work and sneha which we have been doing for so many years so these are a few names of recent e publication where uh, gender based violence interventions have been divided into primary secondary and tertiary interventions So next, please. So this is by the Lancet Commission. This came about in two thousand and fourteen, and this is really, really interesting. What they tried to do is they did a review of programs globally, and they tried to see which interventions were very effective, which were promising, which were conflicting, and which did not have any effect at all. And if you can see in the beginning, micro. and bringing communities together and educating them enabling them to provide a response on violence has been one of the most effective interventions not only everywhere globally in africa in india in latin america so definitely these interventions have quite a bit of evidence and uh, i think when we talk about gbv interventions and communities this is definitely one way to for civil society organizations or government programs to do the work 
The other is parenting programs, protection orders, shelters is promising, but it does not have so much of evidence still. So the school-based programs where uh, children and their parents are taught about uh, parenting attitude, disciplining, these programs are promising, but not yet enough evidence has been gathered. The third one and a very popular one is bystander intervention and perpetrative programs. Everywhere where I go, people tell me, why don't you work with men? Why don't you work with perpetrators? Of course we work with perpetrators. When we do counseling, we do counseling with the perpetrators of violence in that case. But I think what happens is, yes, and of course there is a scope of improvement. But when you, when you upscale these interventions, I think they become conflicting because the amount a counsellor has to spend on one perpetrator to bring about a change is a lot. So scaling up of these programs is quite complicated. Routine screening in health services, mandatory reporting, these have been ineffective. The reason is in hospitals and in uh, public healthcare settings, routine screening will not really, it will be one more paper that the uh, healthcare providers will use, but we are not going to be able to identify women who undergo violence. Not measured are police interventions till now. Uh, Sneha has tried to uh, measure police interventions and interestingly, Today, I haven't put it here in my presentation, but interestingly, police intervention and training, if done over a period of time, definitely lead to, I wouldn't say a change in mindset, but it definitely leads to change in overt behaviors and discipline. Next, please. Yeah, and the last one is shelters. Shelters, counseling, psychotherapy, these are very promising interventions, but again, these interventions require a lot of human resources. And human resources definitely, for a civil society organization, it becomes hard to resources. So for 20 years, Sneha has been running many counseling centers, and it is really hard to get funding to run these counseling centers because it is very human resource heavy. Next, please. So, this is the socio-ecologic model, and uh, the Lancet Commission has promoted that if you want to work on gender based violence intervention, then it is absolutely necessary to work at the individual, interpersonal, organizational, community, and public policy level. So all these factors have an interplay and all these factors work together, they definitely bring about a change. So at Neha, the gender-based violence intervention that we carry out, of course, we did it in phases. We did not do all together. And we did not know for a long time that we are following the socio-ecologic model. But we were, as and when the program expanded, and as and when we understood that it is not only, uh, you can't only work with counseling, but you need to do community mobilization. You need to work with police. And that is how 
our program evolved into a very comprehensive holistic program. So we there are three levels at which we work: the primary prevention level, which is community mobilization, working with uh, women group, men group, and adolescent group, and group education leads to individual volunteerism. So leaders evolve. Leaders emerge from community groups who are trained further to carry out identification, first response, and referral to counseling centers. Uh, the, on the other hand, we also work a lot with institutions like public health hospitals, police, and district legal aid services. Because as a civil society organization, we are not in a position to provide all the resources to the woman. And if we want to help her with a coordinated response, then it is very important that we engage institutions and their members into understanding their role on gender-based violence. Next, please. So I think what we learned and what we really learned was that when we started our work, it was counseling work in the beginning. But counseling, starting a service was very, very important because then it helped us, it led us to do primary prevention work in the community. And it kind of became a loop wherein because we had a counseling center, it was easy for us to uh, talk to community people and say, if you identify cases of violence, please come and uh, refer, please intervene. So I think when we talk about a comprehensive intervention on gender-based violence, secondary prevention is equally important as primary prevention, and they both go very much together. Next, please. So yeah, I have already explained this on how our work evolved from a single counseling center to community mobilization and institutional response. And I think what we want to do in the future is the communities where we work. We want to really catalyze uh, communities to worship to come up with responses on gender-based violence. Next, please. So this, oh, I'm so sorry. I think the words are all garbled. So, so this is a theory of pain. And we this is our program theory of pain. I'm very sorry that some of the letters are not seen. But I can give you a gist of it. But the theory of pain, this exercise was done for about one and a half years. We spoke to our stakeholders, our clients, our team, in order to understand how pain happens and what pain means to everyone when we do these interventions. And I think what we understood, our theory of pain, the premise of our theory of pain is that you enable the communities, provide services to the communities initially, enable the communities to respond, uh, train the communities, enable them to respond, and create an environment of no tolerance to violence, that is the time when communities will really pick up and understand and take ownership of the issue. Next, please. So, uh, 
evaluation on GDV intervention has been always very problematic. And uh, it also, it, it, many a times, and I'm sure my friends and colleagues will agree with me, but it's very hard because there are not many tangible outcomes in evaluation. And, and of course, as women's rights organizations, we believe that when a woman is provided a service and she's been given what she wanted, what is the need to evaluate these interventions? But there have been GBV interventions, mainly community-based interventions that have been evaluated globally. So there were 85 trials, randomized control trials that happened all over the world. And out of which 66 were in the North and only 19 in Global South. So you can imagine the thrust which is so little in South as compared to North, whereas South requires more intervention than the North. Next, please. So these are some of the trials. Why uh, I am talking about the trials is because I think in GBV intervention, like nutrition interventions and other interventions, uh, it's, it's much easier for evaluation to be done, much easier for indicators to be extracted. But when you talk about GBV, indicators are very difficult to extract. You may stop, you may prevent violence today, but what happens after one year? Violence can reoccur, violence can come back. So I think that is why here I'm talking a bit about the trials and what the trials have focused on and what results have come in. Next, please. So here, yeah, 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 you can go next. So most of these evaluations have been in Africa. These evaluations have not been adequately powered. So because they have not been adequately powered, we have not come to know whether community interventions have worked or not. Time frame for interventions have been very little. And that is why multiple forms of violence are not presented. And self-reporting. When you do an evaluation, you definitely do self-reporting. And sometimes self-reporting is not very reliable. So all in all, what I would like to state here is that GBV intervention done by civil foot and society organizations are great. But I think if we want to kind of have more focus and upscale our intervention, because NGOs have limitations in doing their intervention. They have limitations of resources, staff, everything. And it's difficult for civil society organizations. So in such situations that we get an evaluation of community mobilization and other interventions, I think it will help civil society organizations to plan further intervention. Next, please. So the other main basis on which uh, prevention of violence against women and girls has been talked about a lot is changing of social norms. And this is, again, very, very important. If you read all the literature, the literature talks about how over a period of time, you will bring about a change in social norms. And these social norms, which are very pervasive, when women have been 
told talk about these norms men have been told about these norms what are the changes in attitude and how these norms are then implemented in the community next please so this was a very interesting study it was a large study which we also did at sneha and what we understood is there are two types of norms in genetic and descriptive and for almost femininity masculinity child bearing the norms across women and men were the same so they both believe that women should marry early women should have a child early so there were there were a lot of norms which kind of uh, reiterated women's position in the society in the community and if you then talk about the gender gap this is one of again one of the major deterrents of women's status not really matching up with the man's status next please yeah so uh, what we learned from the study was two things there is a mismatch between injunctive and descriptive norm injunctive norm is where everyone believes that this is wrong descriptive norm is everyone believes it is wrong and yet people do it and it is accepted so how when you uh, make when you build immunity program i think it is very very important from the beginning to weave in work on norm and you may not want to do injunctive descriptive but definitely weaving in norm is very very important for uh, gender based violence intervention and second is expanding the reference group so when a woman for example a woman has come for help to our counseling center we have provided her help her situation has been resolved but when the woman goes back to her own situation her own environment she needs to be put in a reference group so she needs to be associated with another a group in her area where she can share her uh, kind of feeling she can go and talk to them she can have solidarity and the reference group will help her will be more vigilant in seeing that the violence doesn't recur with her again so i think these our learnings on immunity intervention have been that these are absolutely necessary interventions to do if we want to have a community based program next please so sneha so a little bit about sneha we are a health based organization and we run four land program maternal and neonatal health which works at the system level to bring about quality care and also at the community level to increase the uptake of uh, uh, health services child health and nutrition again is a large program wherein we are looking at nutrition status of children management of sam and mam children and also working with mothers and ncds to see that nutrition intervention succeed uh m m and health and sexuality of adolescents again is a program that arose from prevention of violence against women and children and now it is a large program where adolescents 
health, sexuality, and gender have been focused for them to become better citizens in the future. And prevention of violence against women and children is a program that cuts across all other programs and violence intervention have been integrated almost in all our programs. Next, please. So now I'm going to talk about three main aspects of intervention. The first is uh, secondary prevention, counseling intervention that we all know about. So what do women need and what do we do? Women generally, when a woman comes to a counseling center, what is her need? Her need is that, you know, whatever problem, violence problem she's facing, that should stop. She should get help. We should intervene with her family, give her medical assistance, help her with the police intervention or not. Mental health is one major aspect of gender-based violence intervention because women undergoing a long period of abuse are prone to mental health conditions. And the other way around, women having mental health conditions are prone to a lot of abuse in the family and society. So mental health interventions are very important. Legal interventions, of course, are important. At some point of time, one is, of course, filing of first uh, information report and non-organizable offense. But I think 60 to 70% of our women do not want to do anything and they want resolutions at the counseling center. But there is 40% of women who require legal intervention and police help. And referral, of course, referral to shelters, child welfare committees, and courts for men in divorce. These are different types of counseling intervention that women come for. And their expectations generally are among these four. Next, please. And what happens? What are the outcomes? And I think in the earlier slide, one intervention, which is safety assessment and uh, mental health assessment. And at the point of time when the woman comes to us, uh, she is highly sometimes suicidal, highly anxious, sometimes very depressed. So those interventions at that point of time are very important with the woman in order to in order to get her out of that crisis and start thinking and analyzing on what she really wants. What happens? What what do we give? And what do generally counseling interventions can give? So violence, stopping of violence is one. Immediate stopping of violence, any form of violence. Thinking slowly, slowly, the counseling process enables the woman to start thinking, analyzing her problem, making decisions, and her own self determination that she wants to bring about a change in her situation. The third is acting how she becomes more empowered to more mobile. She is able to take her own independent decisions to move around and decision to stay in the relationship or to come out of it. And the last one is improved relationship, integration with the family, or separation with the family, access to children and settlement. These are counseling interventions that women ask 
form. And we, we have almost in our database, we have about 14,000 cases from 2001 till day. And what we see is generally on an average, uh, the expectations fall under these categories. Next, please. My immunity mobilization. And so one is counseling, which is very important. But as I said, very difficult and very human resource heavy. What about immunity mobilization? And why is it so important? Because I think it is important because ultimately, unless we don't make communities understand and realize that it is their issue and solutions that come from them are far more plausible than solutions coming from the counselors. Because when community women get together and they kind of have vigilance on the woman or they immediately go and help the woman, the solutions are far more sustainable then counseling solutions. And that is why community mobilization is very, very important, not only to focus on solutions, but on the other hand, to demand their life. So in Dharabi, in Govandi, wherever we were, our women's group, whenever the police doesn't listen to the uh, woman, to the survivor, our group get together, go to the police and demand action against the perpetrator. And that is why I think immunity mobilization is the answer to sustainability of GBV intervention. And how do we do it? We do it through group education on several topics, even group education. Next, please. With men, women, and adolescents. And out of the group education process, leaders evolve. Leaders emerge who are more committed and who want to work more on interventions for against women and children undergoing violence. Next thing. Yeah. So this is, I mean, in, in Dharavi and Govindi, we've worked for a long time. So this is one of our groups where women get together and they discuss the cases that they have referred or the cases that they have handled in the last one month. Of course, we, Neha person also is present in these meetings to exchange information and to guide them on how to take the processes forward. Next, please. Why is it important to work with adolescents and youth? Because I think youth are the people who will bring about a change. And, and I think in the media, in all these OTA platforms, now what we really see is it's a different kind of a uh, fad where, you know, women have, I mean, the OTA platform portray women very boldly. And I think if we want to really bridge this gender gap, then it can only be bridged with adolescents, not only girls, but even boys coming up and confronting and not really allowing these structures to sustain. Next, please. So this, yeah. Why is health system important? Health system response is again very important because a woman, it has been researched and found out that when women undergo violence, the first contact for them is a public hospital. And they will go to the public hospital on the pretext of getting treatment. 
it's very easy for them in the home to say that I'm not well and I'm going to the public hospital. I am taking my child to the public hospital. And healthcare providers can play a very big role in really bringing about uh, referrals and identification of women. And the first uh, line response by healthcare providers, which has been provided by WHO, which is on listen, inquire, validate, enhance safety and support, is something that the healthcare providers can do and provide support to refer the woman to counseling services wherein her other case interventions can be followed up. Next, please. So we do, we were in three public hospitals and we carry out a lot of trainings with healthcare providers on these issues, on providing a first response. Because ultimately, if we want to make GBV a public health concern, then I think we cannot exclude public health providers and a public health response from GBV intervention. Next, please. Mm, uh, like uh, Dr. Vibhuti Patel mentioned, uh, government has been trying to kind of set up one-stop centers, and Sneha has been implementing a one-stop center in one of the large hospitals in Mumbai, wherein we have provided, even in COVID times, we have been able to provide 24 by 7 services to survivors of violence. And I think one-stop center is a very good example. If government can invest more in one-stop centers and the, the gender budget can focus more on investing in these one-stop centers, I think it will be a great service and civil society organizations can complement by carrying out community intervention. Next, please. The other important uh, element is of the police. I think, again, we cannot exclude the police from intervention on GBV. And in COVID times, when we moved our intervention online, I think the only intervention, the only uh, constituency that we could rely on was the police. So our counselors, in cases of crisis intervention, were coordinating with the police on the phone to provide immediate interventions to the women. So I think police plays a very important role. And in, in, in our experience of doing trainings with the police in the last many years, I think what we've really understood is that police are willing to play their role. I think it's about, it's not really about hammering and focusing on changing attitude, but it is about following a protocol which the police absolutely needs to follow when a survivor goes for help. And I think that has worked in the last few years. Next, please. Yeah, this is just a, a photo of police training that we conduct regularly. Next, please. Yeah, and this is a review of law. Of course, there are many laws have been coming, have come in for uh, violence and intervention, but I think the most problematic has been 498 and B, A and B, wherein uh, a lot of 
this all always is on why do women do 498a but what happens in the absence of any other law in uh, uh, the women sometimes are kind of left with no choice when they have so much of face so much of cruelty to file under 498a and b and ewdva which has been a great act of all it has its own loopholes in implementation because of the heavy load of cases that have been registered in the court and the opso act 2012 again has been instrumental in providing relief to survivors of sexual violence yeah. this is these are my last two slides so when i was talking about the evaluation i think uh, the and the trial what sneha and sneha we have we are currently running a cluster randomized control trial and the cluster randomized control trial is evaluating community mobilization intervention on reduction of domestic and intimate partner violence <clears throat> so when we talk about domestic and intimate partner violence uh we talk about physical emotional and gender based maltreatment which includes control neglect and economic violence next thing and the, the this trial is being currently run in 48 clusters in mumbai each cluster having 500 households 24 are controlled and 24 are intervention in the intervention clusters we are carrying out community mobilization activities and in control clusters there is no community mobilization activities but on ethical grounds we are providing counseling interventions to control and intervention clusters we still have two and a half years to go for the trial to complete and we are really hoping that we will be able to throw light on i mean on evaluations on community intervention on gender based violence thank you very much thank you uh, dr nareen for uh, such a thorough and such an insightful presentation thank you very much and without further ado uh, i think we would go to uh, ms poonam kathuria for her comments followed by professor vipati patel thank you uh, ma'am kindly unmute, unmute yourself thank you i have this light behind me which will disturb everybody so i'm sitting at a little bit of a slant but anyway so thank you so much nareen i think that was an amazing amazing uh, presentation but apart from that that was an amazing program man the more holistic at some point i started thinking that my god how much are they doing there's nothing you know that you are sort of from a perspective angle from an intervention angle from a you know meaning uh, <coughs> out including research you're working on norms you're working with health you're working with police so that's a very very diverse program how long has the program been In, in the 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 control and the trial intervention how long has it been there two and a half years and you have two and a half more years that's amazing the, the intervention is for three years punam uh, and the baseline and end line evaluation is for one and a half one and a half one year only yeah so just a way all right so uh, a few comments because it's such a diverse program so it's difficult to point out overall data gaps 
but well my first thought because you started with the health sector response and then there is the i think vimuthi uh, also mentioned about one stop crisis centers and then you have the sakhi centers right and so one falls under the nrhm and the other is with the ministry of women and child so while uh, so nrhm came from a health perspective uh, the sakhi centers i mean okay so both of these at one level run so the nrhm based centers are only in mumbai majorly because yeah. they have been at the initiative of sehat and there has been from a health sector response to violence against women and then you of course have the oscs which come from a domestic violence route if mm. you know what i mean they are not taking the health route and so one of the criticisms and i have studied them in gujarat and i think there are studies around that is that most oscs are located within a hospital hmm however there is very little it, at least in gujarat we studied 10 of them and there is zero coordination with the hospital system hmm all their cases are coming from 181s hmm from the police hmm. or from the court you know the family court and all whatever referral and the little bit of community based work that they do so i would be at some point very curious to know about your work in kem hospital where yes. you are running an osc so i mean right away no but i'm saying if you can sort of respond because that has been a major critique of lack of coordination between government departments mm-hmm. and the health and the women and child we have tried, been really trying to get them together and say so you have like more than 100 osccs now in the country or maybe uh-huh. 300 almost 400 and none of them coordinate so much with the health sector response which you have so properly pointed out that it is important uh the other uh, important thing that you mentioned and i don't know how you want to respond to it mm-hmm. uh very often uh, we do talk of community intervention and we talk of the importance of it mm-hmm. but somewhere the entire focus at some point becomes the state yeah is finally domestic violence is a crime and when it happens what you require is a state intervention because community interventions have their limitations they are dictated by social norms they may not have they are not binding enough so all of those things so i'm just saying uh, if you want to comment on that in terms of saying that for a long time um, so we are constantly focused right now on the state if you look at even the covid 19 situation it was the state which failed us okay the community obviously failed us but it was the state response which which just could not handle that and you have all this data coming out which vibhuti also mentions yeah. and even today you have you know the similar kind of data coming out and violence in nfhs5 has gone up in several states but the state is still non responsive mm. we had a situation where uh you know uh, the ministry kept on saying that uh violence is not happening indian men are not violent so yeah. i'm just so that kind of a situation also but later of course the state has responded by saying yes but we have things in place but i'm not too sure where they were in place so violence being recognized as an emergency so you know is another area that we need to sort of that's where the data gap and so you had a you had a dashboard on covid on on the niti aayog site on every site uh, zero dashboard on violence against whom yeah, yeah. we haven't been able to ask dw because some dwcd wants to deny violence 
see that is where the state is in denial of violence absolutely swimming upstream so you're not it's not you're not flowing uh, the state is not uh, responding to us in a very easy way uh, and that of course when you reflect in the attitude of the community because the see norms cannot change unless the state changes yeah yeah you know this it's not just about awareness it's also about structures it's also about systems which where where decisions are taken and policies are made so while you may we may move from the individual to the collective i agree individual doesn't lead to change so you you work with collectives so from the collective to the social systems but from the social systems how do you now move to structures okay now unless we make those kind of transitions we are we will have uh, successes in the short run is all i'm saying yeah yeah you know you may not have sustainable change in that yeah. sense so i'm saying and that's something that is fairly obvious to us yeah the other thing and that's i think maybe vibhuti can also enlighten us a little more and i am not coming from a very informed perspective there i feel that nfhs does not collect data on the violence by the native family mm. now to me the violence of the marital family is a continuum yeah you would presume yeah. it happens only in the marital family and the natal family is like dukka dulawa and all kinds of violence in different forms you may have to change your definitions of violence yeah you know but you have to collect that data and then you see the the, the continuum of violence across a spectrum the way you see public and private violence because the public violence is a reflection of the violence in the domestic sphere you know in that sense yeah. that was one uh, other thing i completely agree with this whole idea of the who also saying screening uh, you know routine screening is not useful uh, one of the things that at swati we have recently started looking at and we also work with health sector is can i take a call for a second it's a very important call hello ha to sum tum chale jao so um so we started working so we have been working with frontline health workers looking at community level what you called also in another context the primary prevention and early detection yeah. so one of the things that we started doing was we started going the health route which mm-hmm. is let's say telling a asha worker as to what are the outcomes that a violence can impact if a woman is facing all kinds of violence what can it impact so it it can lead to miscarriages it can lead to multiple pregnancy it can lead to you know anemia it can lead to uh, yeah. uh, you know uh, malnutrition it can lead to everything and so we said okay and what are the outcomes you are looking at hmm. you get me and we started asking her for the symptoms that she would see and that actually came out with a lot of so i'm just saying yes i agree with the the non routine screening yeah there is some virtue to developing uh you know so you have not just health indicators but you also have social indicators yeah so that was my one comment holistic you know multi agency coordinated response has been a dream which hasn't come true you are definitely doing it in your program but in general it hasn't been we haven't been able to bring i think i think we have to keep doing it you know at least in areas where we work if you keep doing it you will see a difference at some point sure and then you have of course 
Uh, one of the uh, so uh, one of the things which somebody asked us here was like, what do you the gender transformative approaches? And you know where you change, you see change in understanding, you see changes attitudes, and then you see changes in action and perception. Yeah. You know? yeah. So, so that is what is gender transformative approaches are all about. And my only response to that is that unless you catch them young, absolutely. So, yeah. You no, know, when you go to them at sixteen and seventeen and eighteen, yeah. Uh, there is very very little possibility of then changing those attitudes because some other perceptions have also happened by then. And mm. the peer pressure and all those things are much heavier than the one hour that I spend yeah. educating the person. Yeah. So yeah. Some of those are my comments. And uh, But amazing program. And uh, yes, then over to you people. Thank you so much. Yes, uh, Yes, thank you, uh, ma'am, for your very, very important comments. Yes, over to you, ma'am. Yeah. So I think, Nairi, uh, what you said is very important. And I think we have also experienced, because I was also associated with the social apostolate group uh, started by Bishop uh, Alvin for Bombay. And I think the, what emerged that it is very difficult for the survivor to recover from scars of sexual assault or physical cruelty, emotional stress, psychological damage that is that, and economic hardship in current context of social isolation. Even if she and her family want to put incident behind them and move on, but that's also not possible because there are hurdles at many levels like social uh, ostracization, claiming solid honor among the stigmas, the insensitivity and misogyny of the criminal justice system that we have witnessed recently where uh, courts after courts they were asking rapist to marry the survivor without total insensitivity, 13-year-old girl, she's just, and they, they want her. Uh, nobody, not a word of sympathy for a, a, the trauma that this girl has undergone. And uh, so much, so it, it uh, happened to such a great level in Madras. Like, yeah. so they had to come up with the advisory that <laughs> you just can't uh, use such misogynistic thing. And even counseling, they were more concerned about counseling the accused rather than uh, any, uh, yeah. uh, so showing any empathy for the survivor. So, the, so that, that I think is a very major uh, challenge that we have. And the way during 80s and 90s at the peak of the women's movement, everyone had to undergo gender sensitization. Whether it was a police or judiciary, I think we had to do it with great rigor and we'll have to do it. Uh, the thing is that uh, so, uh, there have been complaints of non-registration of uh, uh, FIR. Even uh, the panic calls which uh, ministry received under 188 and 1098, they themselves admit that they could intervene out of 4 lakh and uh, 15,000 calls, distress calls they got. Uh, and, and so many distress calls are linked to forced marriages. Mm -hmm. And they could inter stop only 12,000. Uh, uh, child marriages. So I think at one level there is awareness because now the girl children in the secondary schools and all they have been told, uh, and, and they also know about the helpline and the, but but they did not get any kind of a support. 
plus also the uh, courts were closed. No? So, so many women who did not get the maintenance of so family courts and PCP entity act was free. So, so many illegal uh, sex, sex selective abortions took place. And also like uh, we saw that uh, contraceptions were not available, but they were not even classified as uh, essential service. So, so many unwanted pregnancies, lacks of unwanted pregnancies happened and the family members, mother-in-law, brother-in-law, husband, they gave all sorts of dangerous things. And so much of health hazard has happened and Ministry of Health doesn't even have any data about only 17% of children neonatal births have been reported and only 24% of pregnant women who are under registration. What about happened to their inoculation, what happened to their vaccination, all these are very, the major dislocation has taken place. And uh, also NFHS, I think what Poonam said that NFHS doesn't uh, talk about the natal violence in the natal family. See, NFHS goes to household and unmarried uh, daughters and the young adults, because I am uh, the chairperson of the ethics committee of uh, Indian International Institute of population sciences and I have seen the question it is a very very exhaustive questionnaire main thing is that violence in the and uh, natal family is underreported that is there that even if it happened the way you complain about your in-laws or matrimonial disturbance in matrimonial home you don't the, that kind of a complaint girls don't make even if it happens so it is reported but it is underreported uh, so I think it is in this context that the women's organizations collectively asked from the Ministry of Women and Child Development to come up with a very uh, data, as a centralized place with the data sources, because there are certain states which have reported, like six states have responded very effectively to the gender-based violence in whatever, within the limitations, because criminal justice system was too focused on COVID pandemic. But with the help of NGOs, civil society organization, community uh, leaders and all, they tried to respond and one-stop crisis centers are also created in six states. But I think to replicate this model, I think we need very good uh, data sources because Dr. Nairin Daruwala also talked about gender responsive budgeting. Right from 2006, we gender economists have been fighting for more yeah. uh, budgetary allocation uh, to combat violence against women. But what is the, the main thing is a for lack of political will. It is not that we don't have funds. Right from 2013, 1,000 crores are allocated as a nearby fund. Why hardly three or four states have used and that to 40 to 60% of utilization. There are states after states, union territories where zero utilization has taken. Money is parked in the ministry, money is parked in the department, but it, it, it is just not used except for CCTV cameras. What more did we get uh, in, in terms of safety of women? The, uh, and uh, stopping stress. The street violence has increased so much. Even the recent uh, study also shows that major reason for declining work participation is a question of safety, security, and the question of mobility. Even while traveling, there's so much of uh, harassment that women are facing. So I think we need to work at several levels. And what I think Sneha and these 13 uh, one-stop crisis centers and the coordination between the government organizations and NGOs. See, Sneha is an excellent example where the community-based collective wisdom also gets percolated into structures and mechanisms that we create because the our capacity, capacity of NGO, one Sehat or one Sneha or or this thing, or even women's network, how much it is. Yeah. We can reach out to certain thousands, but I think it's the government which has to, which can uh, reach to it. And if just in 11 months, there are four, four lakh 25,000 
children who managed to reach the helpline, that itself shows that the, the enormity of the problem, at least those who, who had access to 181 and those who had phone or mobile with them, they reached out. But otherwise, there are so many underreported cases. So I think we need to create similar kind of a tempo in other states. In fact, uh, so many uh, northeastern states, the feminist uh, women activists in northeastern states, they say that they have created a one-stop crisis center, but there is a zero admission. The gatekeeping is so, so they, they, they deter women. They go up to the gate of hospital. They are not even allowed to enter in by the hospital staff. So I think we need, uh, at every, the way Bombay has done it, no? uh, gender sensitization at every level, the Dilasa model, where right from doctors and support staff and healthcare workers and watchmen and liftmen, all of them were sensitized. Then the whole system starts responding. KEM hospital, like Dr. Nair, it's, it's a long history. 1978, when Anura Aruna Shanbag was gang raped, right from that time, we, the whole fraternity, all the whole system among the doctors as well as nurses, because the family abandoned her, uh, the, her, her fiance abandoned her. It was the team in KEM hospital which looked after Aruna Sandbach. So it is a very long legacy of being very gender sensitive, working with the feminists, working always. They were the KEM was the first hospital to start gender in medical education uh, training for the hospital. So I think similarly, this best practice should be, I think, ampli the, their voice should be amplified and also we need to replicate this model. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Bhuti, ma'am, for highlighting these uh, very uh, important concerns that should be at the forefront of not just policy making but also implementation. So, uh, Dr. Nairin, uh, if you could respond to these and then uh, we could take up some of the questions that have come up. Yeah. So, I think uh, Unam about the OSC, and I think Unam OSC in Bombay like Dr. Vibhuti Patel said, has been working well because one, uh, the doctors have been, it has a history of sensitization. Second, Sneha, before the starting the OSC, Sneha has been running a women's OPD in AEM hospital for many years and sensitizing doctors and healthcare providers. And probably that is the reason why we have reference from hospitals equally as well as reference from outside. But I completely understand your point that if, if in a hospital, it cannot be only a hospital-based uh, OSC, it has to reach out to many more women. So yeah, I agree with you. The other one main point was about how far do we continue with community-based intervention and these are with the state responsibility. And I think my perspective on this is, of course, state needs to take that responsibility and God only knows when the state will be able to take that responsibility. But the lack that I see from us, from civil society organizations is we haven't been able to really generate that kind of data that we can go to the government and say that, look, now you please do something about it. And I think that is a reflection for all of us that how do we gather systematic proper data to be able to go to the government and say, this is the need and you need to really 
kind of invest in these services. And uh, then immunity based intervention would be very minimal where you know they can give a first response, they can help the woman connect to the uh, OSC or the counseling center. But I think the failure is equally from the civil society organization. And the often the other failure is the civil society organization. If everyone comes together, imagine the data that we will generate. So I think I think if we reflect, these are some of the ways by which we will be able to uh, earn the government. We will be able to show the government. But that we haven't reached that point yet. So that's my other comment. What was the, the other comment, any, any important comment that I need to respond to? About approaching the community with norms. Yes. The state support. Yes, yes. So I think that is again, uh, it, it's a very good uh, point or observation. I think when we talk about again norms, what we have seen in our work is, Norms change when you work for a long period of time. Now, if you expect the, at the government level to change norms, I think Unambi, uh, I don't think that is going to be possible. But what, as I said, from my experience of working with the police and with the healthcare providers, I think what we can look at is a set of protocols that they need to follow. Whatever they believe, they may believe in their own home that, you know, man is more powerful than the woman. But actually, when they are on duty, I think a set of protocols will systematize this work and will provide a standard response. We just don't have it. No one is pulled up. A doctor is not pulled up if he doesn't see a, a woman who is facing violence. She's going home. A doctor is not pulled up. There is nothing in the protocol which will say that, no, you have not done your duty properly. Where is it? How are we going to train norms which are there for years? But I think what we can train is make very strict protocols to follow. And we see that in with the police also. We see that happening. I think my perspective is this. You're on mute. Vibhuti, ma'am, are you on mute? ma'am. ma'am, please unmute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think the detailed format can be given to the police, like uh, the, the way women's organizations have asked for, no? Recently, under pandemic only, yeah, the yeah. date of assault, brief description of category of assault, police station where the FIR lodge, section under the FIR file, uh, official forensic report, uh, the hospital with victim uh, received, where the victim received treatment, which government com uh, compensations, like, so uh, there, there are so many state governments who have had this provide, uh, which court uh, the case will go, date of completion. So I think this kind of a format, if we make, it will be easier even for the young police officers or even doctors in the casualty ward to get the, so that most of the cases, they, they just get dismissed because of lack of adequate reporting. So I think that reporting system, that, that I think ministry can give the directive, no? the way we have done for PCP and DT Act, uh, Form 16, no? similarly. 
And now we have got a data also in a public system. Yeah. There is no data that is no being uh, collected for violence cases. Correct. Yeah, no, they don't collect it. Casualty yeah. ward also doesn't keep. Casualty oh. department where the first uh, the victim goes, no, with the injury, they also don't maintain any records. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Thank you so much uh, for your comments and um, Dr. Nadeem for your response. I think uh, Nama had message that she would have to leave in the next five minutes. She has dropped out. Um, we could take up some of the questions that have come up and Dr. Nadeem could briefly respond to them so that we could wrap up in the next five to ten minutes. And uh, Dr. Vibhuti, if you would have anything to add, you could please add to the response. Uh, so. Some of these have already been covered uh, in the discussion. So one of the questions is um, from an anonymous attendee, is it more feasible to target prevention of gender-based violence or to target emancipation of survivors from abusive environments? I think both, both are important. And as I uh, have shown in my life, they complement each other. So both are very important. You know, you may emancipate the woman but if the community setting doesn't allow her to be emancipated, what are you going to do? So it is both, isn't it? It complements. Yes. Um, a question from Damini Basu. Emotional violence is certainly a pertinent concern. Thank you for highlighting it. And why is it seen as a mere side effect of the pandemic and lockdown or a cultural idiosyncrasy? Yeah, so I think it is more of a cultural idiosyncrasy that women are not supposed to feel like this. Women have to bear. So I think it's more that rather than emotional violence has been around for a long time. It's only that it, it is under the garb of, you know, the woman tolerating it and not seen as one of the violations of human rights, of women's rights. Um, yes. Then we have uh, a question again from an anonymous attendee is that how do we identify and understand the gender based violence against sex workers, not just women, but also transgenders. Uh, the pandemic did bring out the worst time for them who came to their rescue. So I think the, the issues are the same. Only thing is with uh, sex workers and all, there are even more issues about partner violence, but also violence from their customers. So identification is not different. Any form of violence, if you have to identify, I think the symptoms are the same. Only thing is the but stigma. Are... Stigma. Yeah. No, Dr. Nairi, the stigma, uh, the transgender community and sex uh, workers face. Uh, the, even the relief operations, nobody, even the most philanthropic uh, institution is not ready to support them. So the social isolation and stigma. Uh, that yeah. makes it uh, far more painful. Yeah. 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 No, like but I think, country. for example, I can give example of our counseling center. We say that the counseling center is open to all women. And all when women. we say all women, it includes transgender, it includes women with disability and uh, women on account uh, of occupation, you know, who have been stigmatized. So I think it is up to us that we kind of bring them, not keep them on the margin, but we bring them and we integrate them into the mainstream. Yeah. Yes. Right. 
Um, the next question is from Alia Joseph, uh, who is asking, what are the ethical and safety considerations in conducting RCTs for exploring GBV interventions? Yes. Could you share some examples from your work? Yes, so I think the first ethical consideration was in all areas, uh, how if cases are identified, then you need to provide counseling intervention. So that okay. was one big ethical issue. And we have been providing counseling interventions to cases identified from control area. One is that. Second is, while doing the baseline, we haven't done the end line, but while doing the baseline, the ethical considerations are not putting the woman more at risk by asking questions which will put her at risk in the home. So how do you really balance asking questions and not make her more vulnerable? These are some of the bigger ethical considerations. The third is, if a woman breaks down in an interview, how do you really immediately help her and give her support? These are all ethical issues that one has to deal with. Yes, and uh, safety considerations? Is there anything separate you would like to ask? Safety considerations are very integral to a violence intervention and whether it is an investigator or a counselor, safety assessment for us is absolutely compulsory for every woman. And once the safety assessment is done, the counselor actually raises an alert of how safe the woman is and accordingly a plan is made. And that is that goes same for the investigators also. So safety assessment again has to be mandatorily done for each and every woman. And over the years, now we know when to move the woman, how to give her another shelter. So the program has evolved those strategies. Right, right. Um, we have uh, Sabina Singh in the chat who had brought up the question of um, what can change the psyche of society, which was sort of covered. Uh, Sabina also is asking what for the various groups of stakeholders while you came up with the theory of change? Police, lawyers, uh, private doctors in the community, community members, our volunteers, our group members, our clients who were taking our services, our clients, family members who also were involved in the case. So very uh, public health providers, very range of stakeholders. We also have uh, we also had Vanita Mukherjee in the chat, uh, who was just asking if you could re reiterate with respect to your work the difference between the injunctive norms and descriptive norms. Yes, so I think injunctive norms are that I believe, right? I believe that violence is wrong. Correct, that is the injunctive norm. But I'm not going to take any action on it because nobody else is taking any action. So why should I do it? That is injunctive. The descriptive norm is, if everyone is doing, why can't I do it? So if everyone, if my wife doesn't cook properly, I can, I have a right to hit her. Nobody objects. So if nobody is objective, the descriptive norm is, I can also do the same. Right, right. Um... Then we have a comment on how uh, uh, 
with the use of contraceptives, the women are denied this choice and um, men decide whether to use the contraceptive or not. And that is a violation of reproductive and sexual rights. And also, of course, this plays into the gender-based violence. And um, one last question that we have from Priyanka Bhusli, who is asking, um, Dr. Nerine, do you think public health systems will now look closely uh, at I'm sorry, at incorporating women-centric interventions, given the attention GBV and IPV has thankfully gotten in this pandemic? I think uh, to a certain extent, yes, but to a certain extent, it will be uh, on us, some civil society organizations, to really push for it. Because what happens is in a pandemic, everyone, the priority changes. But once the pandemic settles, and once the load of patients and all that is again so high, it may happen that again it is at the back burner. So in order to not put it at the back burner, I think it is up to us how we keep it alive and we make the changes. Dr. Vibhuti, do you agree with me? Um, you are on mute. I said, yes, I agree totally with you. Yeah. Yes, we have to. Yeah. Right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Those were all the questions. Thank you so much for responding. And if we could briefly uh, go uh, to Dr. Vibhuti Patel and then back to you, Dr. Nareen, for your just brief concluding remarks and reflections and the way forward yeah. on this. I think that what emerges from whatever important uh, highlights of uh, Dr. Nairin's presentation is that at frontline, like we, we have seen that at a local level, a lot of efforts have been made. And even my personal experience also shows that whether it is a neighborhood, uh, so, uh, the societies or SNGs or Panchayati Raj institutions, local, local self-government bodies, uh, the corporators and uh, NGOs, all of them have really worked hard to bring this whole question of gender-based violence very uh, at, a, at, a, uh, at, at a center stage. Another thing, the state commissions for women, I think in several states, states commissions for women have been very proactive in creating the structures, whether it is a question of um, counseling center or uh, kind of getting the police to take action uh, and also uh, setting up the one-stop crisis center within the hospitals. So I think it's important that the Ministry of Women and Child Development and the National Commission for Women, they keep that they create a network. No? So that's very important that we, we do it at a macro level. That is very important. Second one is a gender sensitization. As I, Dr. Nairin also said, I think Kunam Kathuri also said that we have to begin very at a very young age because uh, by the time they are 15, 16, their ideas are already formed. And also looking at the adolescent crimes and especially the boys locker room <laughs> phenomena which happened in Delhi where the elite uh, students from the elite uh, schools, they were conspiring to rape their classmates. So I think it's very important that we, we challenge this kind of a misogynist culture at a very, very young age. So I think the National Education Policy 2020, which talks of gender sensitization, I think we should start from preschool, the question of uh, gender-based violence, discrimination, misogyny. I think we have to expose our children with not only by the lectures, but by role to play, role reversal, showing short films, giving them quiz. Uh, so I think that is uh, uh, very important. And the most important thing is the sensitization of criminal justice system, yeah. uh, both not only police, but also judiciary. So that's very uh, important concern. And I think Dr. Nairine's cross-country uh, country comparison shows that it's a global phenomenon. So how the 
the patriarchal order uh, is creating. Because if the UN says that violence against uh, gender-based violence has increased two to ten times in different countries, in all like two hundred and four countries under pandemic, that itself shows that we have, we have to globally also deal with this issue very very seriously. Yeah. Yes. Thank you, ma'am. And over to you, Dr. Nairine, for your concluding comments. Yes, I think I have spoken enough today. But I, the last thing I would like to say is it is important to identify gender-based violence if it is happening with oneself. We talk a lot about pain. And I think if we all want to see that pain and bring that pain, then it has to begin from myself. And if it doesn't begin from myself, I don't think change can happen. And like uh, Ms. Poonam Athuria was saying, that, you know, when will government understand? I think government will understand when that change comes and cry for change. The demand for change will make it change. So I'm very hopeful it will at some point of time. And we need to hope like that. Only then we can carry forward with all the work. And to all yeah. women here who are watching this show, I think it is very important to raise your hand, stand up against violence, only and only then we will be able to reduce violence in our lives. Yeah. It's not only that we don't perpetrate injustice and uh, violence, but we also prevent, we don't witness, and we don't silent be the silent spectator. So I fully agree with Dr. Nairin Baruwala that we have to stick out our neck and we have to fight yeah. wherever we see, whether it is in our own family or in our community or in our neighborhood or in our own building or in gated community, everywhere. Yeah, yes, so I think that's a very good note to end it on of um, hope, encouragement and conscious and collective action for all of us. So I would uh, once like to formally thank our speaker, Dr. Nairin Daruwala, for uh, taking out the time to uh, deliver this talk and uh, you know, spark this discussion on gender-based violence interventions, impact, and the way forward. Thank you, ma'am. And thank you to our chair, uh, Dr. Vibhuti Patel, for joining us and to our discussant, uh, Ms. Poonam Kathuria, uh, for taking out the time, sharing your insights, and uh, you know, touching on a host of different aspects of this issue, the, the state, the community, and I think uh, many perspectives were shared here. Uh, even so many questions came up from the audience. It was a really uh, holistic and all-encompassing discussion. So thank you to everyone who tuned in. And uh, I hope uh, you continue to tune in to our future episodes of Gender Gaps. And have a very good evening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you for all the best.